Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 6, 2021, and this is show number 839. Hey, should we spend the next 40 minutes or so talking about what we hope will come out of WWDC tomorrow? No? You already heard every other podcast around Earth talking about their hopes and dreams? Yeah, I agree. Let's just get on with the show and we'll find out soon enough if our dreams will come true. Plus, you know what? Most of you are probably hearing this after WWDC anyway. If by some chance you hear this before the WWDC keynote, the live chat room will be hopping with Nocilla Castaways during the keynote. If you've never joined us before, just go to podfeet.com slash chat and enjoy the Discord chat conversation. Now, Steve and I are not going to be on video like we are doing the live show, and we will not be on audio either because we want everyone to enjoy the show instead of listening to us blather on top of it. So I hope to see you there. Well, I wanted to give you a real quick update on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. As you may recall, I upgraded from the 2018 to the 2021, and I chose a white Magic Keyboard. Most of you probably thought I was absolutely nuts going with white. I would like to report that the white keyboard is just as perfect as the day I got it two and a half weeks ago. I carry it everywhere with me, and perhaps I'm a smidge more careful about washing my hands before I use it, and, you know, maybe I check the counter a little more before I set it down, but I've been using the daylights out of this thing. I'm sure it's going to show signs of wear eventually, but other than using a cotton swab to dust between the keys, I've done nothing at all to clean it, and it looks perfect. I also love this new keyboard even more than the original Magic Keyboard. It is such an absolute delight to type on that I choose to write on it over using my 16-inch MacBook Pro just because of the keyboard. I've also started to take and make FaceTime calls on the iPad Pro because of the feature center stage that keeps you in the center of the screen. It continues to be just as magical as when we first used it, and it makes it just so much easier to have calls when you also need to get something done. I can walk back and forth in the kitchen, and Steve can join the call, and we stay centered beautifully. I know I described all of this when I first got it, but it's truly magical how well it works. I was afraid it would just be a party trick, which it definitely is, but it's making me choose the iPad for more and more things. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, Micah Sargent joins us to explain why he's so excited about what the new technology called Thread is going to bring to the Internet of Things, or IoT. You may know Micah from the awesome show Clockwise with Dan Morin, or perhaps iOS Today with Rosemary Orchard, or Smart Tech Today with Matthew Casolini, all on the Twit Network. Micah starts with the problem to be solved, which is slow Bluetooth devices versus heavy Wi-Fi devices and troublesome network connectivity. He explains how Thread will solve these problems, both at an overarching vision level, as well as getting down into the nerdy bits of how Thread does its magic. We'll learn about sleepy Thread devices, Thread border routers, and what it means when you see the words work with matter on a device. It's a uh, fantastic episode. He did a great job of describing it. And there was an awful lot in there that I didn't know. I didn't know most of what he was telling me. So I'd even done a bunch of research and I didn't really understand what was uh, really going on here until he told us about it. So please check out Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice. It's episode number 687. You can look for Micah Sargent on what thread means for the Internet of Things. 
My friend Diane was visiting her granddaughter, and as one does, she was giving tech support to her daughter-in-law. She wanted to bounce ideas off of someone as she was working on a problem, so she brought me in with the phone-a-friend option. The problem to be solved was one I hadn't actually given much thought to, but which I suspect many people face. Her daughter-in-law had a 256-gigabyte MacBook Air, and as often happens, her photos library would not fit on her internal disk. If you're not entirely familiar with iCloud Photo Library, let me explain what the two options are. You can choose to have full-sized images downloaded to your device, or you can choose optimized images. The optimized images give you thumbnails of every photo in your library, and when you select a thumbnail, it downloads the full-sized image. It also has some other magic sauce that is supposed to keep your most recent and most recently accessed images in full size for quick retrieval. If you've got a good internet connection, it's kind of the best of both worlds. All of your full-sized images are available on demand, but you don't pay for local storage on your device for all of that data. Since Diane's daughter-in-law has only a 256GB drive in her Mac, she's been running with optimized images with iCloud Photo Library. This works perfectly for her but she realized that she doesn't have a backup of the full-sized images as they only exist on Apple servers. She wanted a way to back these, up, these images up locally, which I think is a very reasonable thing to be able to expect to do. If she was a geek, she'd probably also have a Mac Mini or an iMac with a bigger drive where the full-size images could be stored, and she could run backups from that machine. But how do you back up the full-res images if you don't have a bigger Mac onto which to download those images? This was a question I'd definitely not pondered before. Before calling me, Diane tried to change the photos library on the Mac in question to full-sized images, since she really had no idea how big the library actually was. It ran overnight and eventually stopped when it ran out of disk space. This put the MacBook Air in a bad state where doing just about anything caused an alert about not having enough disk space. Diane flipped it back to optimized, but it didn't obey until she rebooted the Mac. The MacBook Air was back in fighting shape after a reboot, but the question of how to back up the phones, the photos was still in play. So Diane and I started noodling this problem together. We first walked through whether there was some way to download the photos to an external drive. Technically, it is possible to have your photos library on an external drive, but it's one of those tricks that you have to fuss with all the time, and she'd have to always carry this external drive tethered to her notebook. That wasn't really a clean solution. Diane asked whether there was some way to use iCloud.com to help with this problem. I did some experiments and I found a solution that definitely will work. It's a bit of a tedious process and it does involve one very nerdy step, but no bit of this nerdy step is technically difficult at all. It's some copying and pasting. We're going to download all of the photos from iCloud.com to an external drive, but we have to do a couple of things first. By default, your browser is probably set to put any downloads into your downloads folder. Since our goal is to get these full-sized images onto an external drive, we need the downloads to go to that external drive. I'm going to use Safari as an example of the steps to achieve this, but of course you could use any browser. In Safari, open Safari Preferences, and on the General tab you'll find a drop-down for File Download Location. Change it from its current location, which is probably Downloads, to the option Other and choose the external drive. Next, we're going to navigate to iCloud.com and Authenticate and Open Photos. We want to make sure all of the photos in the library are available, so on the left sidebar, you have to make sure that Photos is chosen under where it says Library. You don't want it set to Favorites or Hidden or whatever, any other option. You want to make sure it's on Photos under Library. In the toolbar above the images, you'll see a slider to change the size of the thumbnails. 
We're going to be selecting a lot of images, so I'd suggest sliding it all the way to the left for the smallest thumbnails possible. Now in the upper right, you're going to see five icons. There's a cloud with an up arrow that allows you to upload photos to iCloud library. There's a plus button that allows you to create albums and folders. There's a square with an up arrow that allows you to share images. There's a cloud with a down arrow, remember this one, and that allows you to download images. And finally, a trash can to allow you to delete images. Now, you've probably guessed that this cloud with a down arrow icon is what we need for this final step. If you hover over the cloud with the down arrow, you'll see a very tiny gray downward chevron. Tap that nearly invisible chevron and you'll be offered the option to download unmodified originals or most compatible, including edits. Now, if you've carefully edited your photos by cropping, fixing lighting, and all that kind of thing, then you definitely want to change this to most compatible. If you don't use the downward chevron, the downloaded images default to unmodified originals, and they'll give you the images exactly as captured or imported. Now that we know how this works, I would suggest selecting just a few images to test at first, and then downloading in the format you desire. Verify that the downloads to your external drive are there and are of the expected size before going on with the big download. Once you're confident that this process is going to work, it's time to start the big download. Now, technically, you can use Command-A to select all of your photos and then tap that download icon. And if absolutely nothing goes wrong for the entire duration of this work, you'll be golden. You feel lucky? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Ideally, it would be nice if we had a way to easily view each year month by month or even year by year in iCloud.com, but they don't give us that option. You might think you could create smart albums for each year over in the Apple Photos app on your Mac and then use those to narrow things down in iCloud.com. But guess what? Smart albums don't sync to iCloud.com. Take a look at your phone or your iPad. You'll notice they're not there. The smart albums don't transfer over to your other devices because they're not in iCloud.com. Well, in Apple Photos on your Mac, you could create smart albums by year and then create regular albums by year with, you know, just the name of the year and then drag and drop the photos from the smart albums to the regular albums. You could create year folders on your external drive as well. This process would really help you have organized photos on this external drive because those real albums, not the smart ones, but the real albums do sync through iCloud.com. Now, if you're as particular as I am, you might even want to make albums by month in this process and put those in the year folders, but you know, that might just be me. Whether you export a single image or a range of images, the download you get from exporting from iCloud.com will be a zip file entitled iCloudPhotos.zip. When you unzip the file, you'll have a folder called iCloud Photos. This would make it easy to change the title right after download to say 2016-05 for May of 2016. That's if you're doing organization the way I would do this. The two options we had to download from iCloud were originals or most compatible, which included any edits we'd made to our images. Well, most compatible means not live photos. Instead of live photos, you'll find two files have been downloaded, an HEIC, which is the key photo from the live photo, and a second file of the same name that is the teeny tiny video from the live photo. It's not ideal, but you know what? As a backup, it's still pretty good. But there's a huge problem with this whole process. For yet another reason I cannot explain, Apple does not preserve the capture dates for the images as the creation date for the downloaded file. All of the creation dates of the images files will be the date you downloaded them instead of the date the photo was taken.
seriously. As an added curiosity, the modify dates on all of the files will be four hours in the future from whatever time you downloaded them. Well, the good news is that image files have what's called EXIF data embedded in them, and one of the data items is the original capture date. So the image knows when it was taken, it's just that macOS is using the date the image was downloaded as the creation date instead. We need to figure out how to change the file creation date to the image's original capture date from the EXIF data. There's a lot of tools out there with nice graphical user interfaces that'll help you mess around with the EXIF data. Most of them let you change the EXIF data, but some let you extract the data, and some allow doing bulk actions on many files at once. Virtually all of the tools I looked at cost money, and I wasn't willing to buy them all in order to make a recommendation on which ones you should buy. Instead, I'm going to suggest a very, very easy and free solution to this problem that's also super nerdy. But it's easy nerdy, I promise, it's super easy. We're going to use a free command line tool in the terminal called EXIF tool. We're going to install EXIF tool using a package manager called Homebrew from brew.sh. All you have to do is open the terminal, which is in Applications Utilities, copy and paste the command I put in the show notes to install Homebrew. Now, if you don't want to copy and paste from me, you can go to brew.sh, and that's all they've got on the homepage there too, is this same command. So you're going you're gonna to copy and paste this long command. It says slash bin slash bash space dash C quote dollar curl. I don't even know what it all means, but it definitely does install Homebrew. Now, after you do this, you may see a lot of glop go by on screen, and unless you see giant warnings that everything went wrong, you can safely ignore all this glop. So far, it sounds nerdy, but after you've just installed this uh, software called Homebrew by copying and pasting this into the terminal. Next, you're going to install EXIF tool. And the joy of Homebrew is that in install tools, you simply type brew space install in the terminal, following it by the name of the tool you want to install. So for us, we're going to type brew space install EXIF tool. Again, you may see glop on screen, but don't worry your pretty little head about it. Believe it or not, we're ready to start changing the dates of the image files to match the capture date stored in the EXIF data in the image. Thanks to a contributor to the exiftool.org forums named Stargeek, the very simple command to make this work is one single line. I'm also not going to repeat this one uh, to you, but it's actually a little bit human readable. But what I want you to do is copy and paste this line into the terminal. I, uh, I gave it a little bit more detail than what he wrote. At the end of this command, it says slash path to files, but typing that path to files is, is really annoying, especially if your folder names have spaces in them because you have to escape out the spaces with backslashes and put the path in quotes. It's really, really annoying. I never do it because there's an easier way than typing out the path to files. You copy and paste into the terminal the first part of the command that I put up there and add a space to the end of the command, but don't hit enter just yet. Open a finder window to the folder containing your downloaded images. At the top of that window, you should see the name of the folder created by opening the zip file from iCloud.com. If you haven't changed it, the name of that folder is going to be iCloud Photos. If you hover over the folder title in the toolbar of the Finder window for a second, or click on the name if you're impatient like I am, a little icon of a folder will be revealed. This icon is called the proxy icon, and it identifies the path to the folder. So we need the path to the folder in the terminal. When you can see the proxy icon, all you do is drag it to your terminal window, and it's going to pop the full path into that command we just typed. 
I pasted my entire command into the show notes so you can see it with this long, annoying path to the files, but it was all automatically entered by me dragging that proxy icon. Once you drag that in, just hit the enter key to execute the command, and in short order, you will see the dates of the files begin to change to their true capture date. Now, keep in mind that some of the images don't have the capture date available. For example, screen captures don't know their capture date, and obviously, any images you've scanned in don't know their original capture date unless you've added that manually. I put a few images in the show notes to illustrate how your image files will look before and after pasting in this one-line command. The first two files are still showing today's date because they were both screenshots, but the rest of the files have the correct date and time. I did put in a, a little command that the, uh, the star geek didn't put in, dash API QuickTime UTC. That bit adjusts the time as well as the date for you. Now, I did warn you that this was nerdy, but seriously, you only had to copy and paste three commands into your terminal and you were done. It cost you no money and it actually works. Now, I don't know how long this would take if you download five years worth of photos. I did it on a very few photos and it, it took a few seconds. It wasn't instantaneous. So again, consider that you might want to do month by month if this is really important to you. Now, I enjoyed the journey of figuring this out, how to do it, but it's really a bummer that this is such a complicated process. I really wish Apple would make it a lot easier. Part of me was truly hoping I missed something really obvious and one of you would write into me and say, well, actually, Allison, and give us a far easier solution. Well, after I wrote it up, I did get a well, actually, Allison from Teddy in the comment section of the blog post. He pointed out that you can download all of your photos from appleid.apple.com. And I put a link in the show notes on exactly how to get to it. He wondered whether perhaps this method of downloading the images might correctly put the capture date as the file creation date. I took a look at the process, and in the last step, Apple explains that they'll be sending you chunks of a specific size you get to choose. You can choose 1 gigabyte, 2 gigabyte, 5 gigabyte, 10 gigabyte, or 25 gigabytes. I considered pushing the button, but my photos library is 774 gigabytes, and I didn't think I'd live long enough to see, to see that download come in. I wondered if it might send me a chunk at a time, but instead of testing this idea, I reached out in Slack and asked if someone with a much smaller library might try it for me. Both Nuclear John and Mac Lurker said they had small libraries and they'd give it a try. Instead of Apple downloading a chunk at a time to them, though, Apple said they'd prepare the data, but it would take up to seven days to prepare. Mac Lurker's library is only two and a half gigabytes, but she got the same message as Nuclear John. Now, luckily, it didn't take seven days, but it did take three days for MacLurker's data to arrive. Sadly, when she opened the zip file, all of the file creation dates were today's date, just like with the download from iCloud.com, and they even had the modified date four hours in the future, just like with iCloud.com downloads. Now, she did get one more interesting bit in the zip file. They shipped her a CSV file that contained all of the image names and the import date of each file. I have no idea why you'd want or need to know the date an image was imported, but they give it to you anyway. So if you have a large photo library, downloading from appleid.apple.com might be an easier way because you can just push the button and wait for Apple to send it to you instead of trying to do a select all and downloading in real time. If you're an organized person like me, I still think doing a year or even smaller chunks using smart albums dragged into real albums from photos is a better way to go. I really want to thank MacLurker and Nuclear John for checking into this, and especially Teddy for discovering this new idea in the first place. 
Recently, in one of our community channels, we were chatting about the announcement that 1Password is now available for Linux, and someone responded that they use iCloud Keychain and that it's good enough for them. I've heard this comment before, and I never sat down to really outline or think through what a a password manager gives you that iCloud Keychain does not. I wanted to understand what people are missing if they only rely on iCloud Keychain, and there's no better way to learn than to try to explain it. After listening to my arguments, you may still feel that iCloud Keychain gives you what you need, but maybe you'll learn something that would be valuable to you in a password manager. Now, my recent experience is all with 1Password, but I used to use LastPass years ago. They're both terrific services, and they have many of the same features. The names of the functions may be different, but I think if I use 1Password as an example, you get the point of the advantage of using any password manager. Let's start by understanding what iCloud Keychain does for you because it really is a terrific service. According to Apple's support article about uh, iCloud Keychain, they say iCloud Keychain stores credit card numbers and expiration dates without storing or autofilling the security code and passwords and usernames, Wi-Fi passwords, internet accounts, and more. Obviously, this is the kind of data we want to protect. Apple explains that iCloud protects your information with end-to-end encryption. They protect it in transit and at rest. This is all terrific. Even Apple can't get to your data. However, this data is protected on your device only by your login, password, or passcode. How many digits long is your Mac login? Do you have numbers and letters and special characters in it? I have to admit that while my login password is you know, probably better than average, it's definitely not worthy of protecting my bank login. How about your iPhone's login, password, or passcode? I wouldn't trust my family jewels to that. Now, bad actors won't get to your data stored in iCloud Keychain on the internet because Apple is protecting it really well. There's still a pretty huge vulnerability in your own device passwords. Now, the weakest link in passwords is us. Humans are not good at thinking up long, complex, random passwords. It's not our fault. We're just simply not designed to do it. The the non-complex passwords we think up are naturally repeated across websites because it's just too hard to do anything else. One of the great things about iCloud Keychain is that it suggests a long, complex password for you when you first need to create one. If you allow iCloud Keychain to create your passwords and store them, you will be leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. And it really is a game of being ahead of the the pack. The passwords that iCloud Keychain creates are long and complex, as I said. But they're also very difficult to type, and they are impossible to remember. They're a random glop of numbers and letters and special characters. Now, this is normally just fine because the goal is not to try to remember your passwords. (laughs) You can't. It's to trust the systems, either iCloud Keychain or a password manager. Unfortunately, sometimes you do have to type them in, and it will be quite the chore if you use iCloud Keychain to create your passwords. Now, the only way that these great passwords will be of any help is if they're always there for you. The fact that iCloud Keychain syncs across your iPhone, Mac, and iPad means that you've got them at your fingertips. If you know you can trust that iCloud Keychain will have your passwords when you need them, you're more likely to let it choose your passwords for you, which is a very good thing. But what if you have a Mac and an Android phone? Or maybe you're an iPhone user, but you use a Windows PC. iCloud Keychain won't be there for you. If you don't have the passwords when you need them, you won't trust iCloud Keychain and you'll go back to using less secure and reused passwords. And what about passwords to accounts you share with others? Maybe you and your partner have a shared bank account or credit card. What happens if you have to change the password for some reason? How do you let your partner know? 
Maybe your memory is perfection itself, but the rest of us have eh, probably a 50% success rate on something like that. If something were to happen to you, I would assume that at least one person you love has access to your phone or Mac or iPad. They could log into your accounts because of iCloud Keychain, which is great, but how do they know what accounts exist? If you take care of the phone bill, do they know where that website is to go to? How would they figure that out from iCloud Keychain? Let's switch gears and compare iCloud Keychain to using a password manager. Like iCloud Keychain, 1Password information is encrypted in transit and at rest with AES 256-bit encryption. If you lose your 1Password login, they simply cannot retrieve it for you. Seriously, can't get it. You lose it, you're out. So let's go through some of the features and advantages you get with 1Password. I explained that iCloud Keychain protects your passwords with your Mac or iPhone's login, and it's highly likely that you have fairly simple passwords on both. With the Password Manager, you create one wicked long password with numbers and letters and uppercase and lowercase and special characters and a goat in the middle of it. You make it this complex because it is literally the key to the kingdom. You're going to have to type it in from time to time, but in most cases you won't. Touch ID or Face ID on your phone and iPad can unlock 1Password. If you have a MacBook with Touch ID, you can open 1Password with your fingerprint. If you have a Mac with a T2 security chip, you could even use your Apple Watch to authenticate to 1Password. Now, 1Password will ask you to type in the full password from time to time just to make sure you never forget it. With a password manager, this is the only password you have to remember, so you get really good at it. Now, 1Password will suggest passwords for you, just like iCloud Keychain, when you're first setting up an account. With 1Password, you can choose an unmemorable pile of glop password, just like iCloud Keychain, or you can choose a setting in 1Password to have it offer you a memorable password. Memorable passwords include a series of human-readable words with separators between them. You can use a slider to set how many words you want, whether to intermingle words with all caps, you do, and what kind of separator it should use. It's almost as good as BART's xkpasswd.net service, but of course BART has a lot more options. But you know what, if you're in a hurry, 1Password has your back, and these are good passwords. Now I want to emphasize there's nothing wrong with iCloud Keychain's passwords from a security standpoint, but if you ever have to type them in, you're going to wish you had 1Password. Many accounts these days allow you or even make you have two-factor authentication with an authenticator code. They often refer to it as Google Authenticator on websites, but you can create these same authenticator codes with 1Password. It's a bit buried, but once you know where it is and how to turn it on, it's really easy. If you use iCloud Keychain, you'd have to use a secondary app like Google Authenticator in order to protect your most important accounts with two-factor authentication. With 1Password, it's built right in. Now, we talked about iCloud Keychain working across all your devices, but that's true if you only use products from Apple. With 1Password, your passwords are available on your Mac, iPhone, Windows PC, Android phone, and now they even have a native client for Linux. If you live in a cross-platform world, a dedicated password manager is a much better option than iCloud Keychain. If you use iCloud Keychain and change a password, you have to remember to tell your partner or other family members or roommates. With a dedicated password manager, you can share specific passwords so that if you change the password, they get the change automatically and you don't even have to remember to tell them. 1Password does this through what they call shared vaults. Steve and I have our own private vaults because I don't need access to his Apple ID and he doesn't need to log into my podfee.com admin account. But we share credit cards and bank accounts and even more critical things like our Netflix password. Those all go in a shared vault. 
If for some reason I need to change a password on a shared account, I don't have to remember to tell him. In the most recent versions of 1Password, they've made it super easy to move items in and out of shared vaults. You simply drag and drop between them. The last time I used LastPass, they allowed you to share logins one by one, which in some cases has an advantage over the vault concept. Now remember, we can have two-factor authentication with 1Password. If the site you're authenticating to is smart enough to use an authenticator instead of the insecure SMS, then the two-factor authentication is available to you and your partner with 1Password, so you get it for both. Now every year, 1Password adds new things you could store in your vaults. We've been talking about logins to online services, but it's so much more than that. 1Password has categories for the different types of data you may want to store in your vaults. Categories are very useful because they're tailored to prompt you to store exactly the right information for that type of data. For example, if you chose uh, to put in a wireless router, it'll ask you the base station name and password, but it'll also give you fields for the IP address, the type of security, and any attached storage passwords. It took me a long time to trust 1Password with my credit cards, but it is glorious to have them autofill for me after I authenticate into 1Password. Like you can with macOS and iOS natively with iCloud Keychain, 1Password can also store identity information, so you can have your address, phone number, and birthday autofilled. It was interesting to me that iCloud Keychain doesn't store the CVV number from the card, but 1Password does save it for you. Not quite sure why Apple doesn't. Maybe because it's uh, secured with your uh, passcode to your phone. 1Password recently added bank accounts as a specific category. I created my entries before that category existed, but it'd be so much easier now because it has dedicated fields for things like the routing number. You, think about it. You don't have that when you're using uh, iCloud Keychain. I won't go through every type of account, but 1Password has categories for databases, driver's license, email accounts, medical records, membership, passwords, reward programs, servers, and social security numbers. They also have plain old garden variety secure notes. If you don't use a password manager and you need to write a secure note for yourself, you can easily use Apple Notes. You know, it's not a bad solution, and the protection there is very good, but now you've got two places where you've stored information, iCloud Keychain and Notes, and remember you got your Google Authenticator app too, so now you've got three applications. One of the most valuable things 1Password can store is software licenses. While these don't require a high security of a password manager, it is delightful to have them all collected in one place. It even picks up the pretty icon of the application, so it's easy to scan to look for the app license you need. I use this all the time. Now, I mentioned passports earlier, and we actually use this feature of 1Password. When Steve and I were in Peru, someone stole his backpack at the airport in Cusco as we were leaving to go to Lima to then fly home. It had a lot of electronics in it, but more importantly, the backpack contained Steve's passport. In order to get a new one, you need to know your old passport number. We had scanned in our passports to 1Password years before, so we were able to not only give them the number to the passport office, we were able to make a printout of it. I'm not sure it made a big difference, but it seemed to help smooth out the process. Now, all of us have the goal of having accounts that are impenetrable. The threats to our accounts can come from so many different places that I count on 1Password to watch for them for me. They tell you if you've used a weak password, and especially if you've reused a password iCloud Keychain will tell you if you type in a weak password, and it will give you some information about vulnerable passwords, so that's really good too. Knowing with 1Password that you have a reused password is really important, because if one of the sites gets hacked, your other site is just easy pickings for the hackers. 
I think that the reuse password section in 1Password could be improved, not because it won't show me where I've duplicated a password, but because it shows me duplicates that I can't do anything about. There are at least a dozen services and websites that have two ways for me to get into them, so I have two entries with the same username and password combination. I guess it's better that they don't miss any, but I'd sure like to be able to see a clean bill of health someday. You know, you've got your appleid.apple.com password, but you've got your iCloud.com password. Those are the same. So it tells you, oh, you've duplicated that, and it gives you a big, you know, red mark. You're a bad person because you did it wrong, but you can't fix that. That's just always going to be true. Well, they also have a section for vulnerable passwords. They take the hash of your password, which is where they run your password through the algorithm that disguises it, and then they compare the disguised version to an online database of security exploits provided by HaveIBeenPwned.com. Now, I want to emphasize that your plain text password is never exposed through this process, but if your hash password is in this database, then it means the bad guys can recognize your hash password when they attack other sites. You really, truly do not want to use a password that's in this database. The Vulnerable Password Check is another service you get with 1Password, and I think iCloud.com or iCloud Keychain may provide that service. I'm not 100% certain, but I think it does. By the way, you can always check every password of yours one by one at haveibeenpwned.com, but that'd be pretty tedious. 1Password will also reveal to you if any of the websites for which you have a login have been compromised since you last changed your password. It then prompts you to log into the site and create a new one. A recent addition in the last few years is that 1Password will show any logins you've stored that point to unsecured websites. If you've been at this for a long time, it's highly likely you've stored a lot of logins using the HTTP version of the web service. With 1Password, you can ask it to check all of your insecure sites to see if HTTPS is available. I've been fixing these as I use them, but you know, I really should spend some quality time fixing them all. Another cool feature of 1Password is that it'll let you tell you in a bright red banner if two-factor authentication is available for the site you're looking at, but you haven't yet set it up. I tend to fix, fix these as I go too, but I should buckle down and do them all. Now, notification of the availability of the option for two-factor authentication is yet another thing iCloud Keychain does not give you. Now, as the nerds and residents in your family, most of us are also in charge of keeping our family members safe on the internet. I'm sure your partner has very fine qualities, but, you know, maybe taking security seriously is not their top priority. With 1Password for Families, you can help manage the passwords of your family members. You can even reset their 1Password if they ever forget, with, forget it, which would be could be really handy. The bottom line is that iCloud Keychain is a great service, and I think it's helped many people to become much more secure in their digital life. But it's pretty obvious that 1Password and other password managers offer a lot more than iCloud Keychain does to keep you safe online. I highly recommend you go check out 1Password at onepassword.com. It's $3 per month for individuals and only 5 bucks per month for families. If I had to narrow down my subscriptions to just one, the last one standing would probably be 1Password. That or, you know, maybe Text Expander. Our hero of the week is Tony Ewing. Why is he our hero, you ask? Because he went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and he pledged to support the work we do here at the Podfeet Podcast. He chose a dollar amount that was right for him and his family to show his appreciation for what he learns here. I can't thank Tony and all of the other patrons enough for helping to keep the lights on and the tech flowing to all of you.
I recently created a super fun tutorial for Screencast Online entitled 14 Tips in iOS 14. It was super fun for several reasons. I think it's going to be really well received because the tips are so fast paced, the audience can't possibly get bored. If you don't care about the camera app, how about a quicker way to change Wi-Fi networks? Don't care about Wi-Fi? How about some cool tips on how to have your phone read long form content to you? The other reason I say it was super fun is that it was so much fun to record. I love creating screencast online video tutorials, but recording macOS is really hard. It takes me the better part of a week to do all of the recording for a 30 to 40 minute tutorial. And for that whole week, I have to make sure the windows don't move for the entire recording. I'm afraid to touch my laptop for fear of changing things and causing some big jump in the video. In contrast, with iOS, you don't have to worry about Windows moving around since it isn't a windowing system. This particular tutorial was even easier because each tip was standalone so I could knock off one at a time. I did have trouble recording one of the tips, and I was really proud of myself that I figured out how to solve this recording problem. The problem to be solved is, I mentioned this one tip was how to have your iPhone read long-form content to you. In order to demonstrate this, I needed to record three things. Video of the iPhone screen while I was demonstrating the tip, audio from my big girl mic as I described each step, and finally the audio coming out of the iPhone in high quality. Because the whole point of the tip is the iPhone's going to be reading to you, I had to be able to record it. That last bit was so important, and it was the hardest part. If the audience can't hear the phone reading back, then the entire point of the tip would have been lost. I could have held the iPhone up to my microphone, but that would have sounded awful. I needed to be able to digitally capture the audio from the iPhone while also recording my voice and recording video of the iPhone screen. To record the video from an iPhone on a Mac, you simply plug in the iPhone, launch QuickTime, start a new movie recording, and use the downward chevron next to the red record button and change the camera to the iPhone. From that same menu, you can set your audio input to your big girl microphone. That's two down, but how do you record the audio out of the iPhone itself? Well, Rogue Amoeba comes to the rescue. They have a dandy support article on how to record audio out from an iPhone using my favorite app, Audio Hijack. The trick explained in the Rogue Amoeba article is very weird and buried. You first launch the utility Audio MIDI Setup. That's in your utilities folder inside applications. With your iPhone plugged in, you'll see it in the left sidebar of Audio MIDI Setup. It will show the name of your iPhone and a button below it that says Enable. So in my case, my phone is called Michaela 12 Pro. I see Michaela 12 Pro in the sidebar of Audio MIDI setup with the Enable button highlighted. Apple Use includes a helpful explanation that says enabling this will allow you to record non-audio telephony via the Lightning to USB cable. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it turns out to be exactly what we want. Now, here's the really weird part. When you enable this audio capture feature from your named iPhone, so Michaela 12 Pro, you'll see a second audio device appear called simply iPhone. It's this newly created audio device that will show up as a microphone in the system sound control panel. As soon as I read this, I thought, I've got my answer. I can use Audio Hijack to grab my mic as one input and the iPhone as the second input because now it's available to me. This works perfectly unless you try to record or even view the iPhone screen using QuickTime, which is how I needed to record the video. As soon as you launch QuickTime and choose the iPhone as the video source, boom, this phantom audio input source entitled iPhone 
disappears from audio MIDI setup. You'll still see your named iPhone inviting you to enable it as an audio source. I tried this four times, doing it all different ways, and each time I launched QuickTime and pointed to the phone as a video source, iPhone vaporized from the audio MIDI setup. Now, some of you are probably hollering at your device right now, suggesting the obvious solution. Why not use the built-in screen recording option in iOS? If you open Control Center in Settings on iOS, you'll find Screen Recording. Tap the green plus button, and now Screen Recording will be made available to you in Control Center. So now you can drag down from the top right of your iOS uh, device, and in Control Center, you should now see a double circle icon for Screen Recording. When you select screen recording, if you hold down on the record button, you'll be given the option to also record audio. So if you just tap it, it just does video. You have to hold to get to record audio. It'll capture any sound coming into the phone's microphone, which in this case will be my voice as I talk through the steps, and it records the iPhone system sounds. To recap, with my first solution using QuickTime, I can record my mic's audio and video from the iPhone, but I can't record the phone's audio. With the second solution, I can record the iPhone screen and a cruddy version of my voice from the iPhone's microphone, but I can also get the iPhone's audio. It seemed I couldn't have good audio from my mic and good audio from the iPhone with one solution. The solution I came up with was to use half of each tip and stitch them together. The tip from Rogue Amoeba on how to enable the iPhone as an audio source works as long as I don't use QuickTime to record the screen of the phone. I enabled the iPhone in audio MIDI setup and then used the iPhone as an audio input within the audio hijack session. I added my big girl mic as a second audio input source. Now, I'm going to want these two audio sources to be on different channels so I can mess with them separately in my final video. In Audio Hijack, you can use an effect called Channels to double the audio on one channel and kill it on the opposite channel. So I did that to my two audio input sources, which gave me the iPhone audio out of, uh, I think it was my left channel, and my voice on my right channel. I started a recording in Audio Hijack, then I started the screen recorded, recording natively on the iPhone. I walked through the tutorial while describing each step. I stopped the phone recording and then the Audio Hijack recording. So now I've got two files, a stereo audio recording of my mic and the iPhone's audio on separate channels, and a video recording with the audio of my voice from the iPhone's mic and the iPhone's audio. I then transfer the screen recording from my iPhone to the Mac. Now this sounds trivial, but it wasn't. You'd think I could just airdrop it to the Mac, but I couldn't because I use a spare iPhone that's logged into a dummy Screencast Online iCloud account. Normally, I also do my video recordings from an account on the Mac that's logged into that Screencast Online iCloud account, but since I wasn't bothering to record the screen of the Mac, I hadn't bothered logging into that separate account. Since AirDrop requires both devices to be on the iCloud, same iCloud account, I was stuck. I ended up sharing the video from the iPhone to Dropbox, logged into Dropbox on my Mac, and pulled in the video. I pulled the video from the iPhone into my video screencasting software ScreenFlow from Telestream. If you right-click on a video track that is embedded audio, you can choose to detach the audio onto its own track. This enabled me to separate that cruddy audio of my voice. I would eventually be deleting it, but not just yet. Next, I dragged in the stereo recording I'd made with Audio Hijack with the left and right channels for my mic and the iPhone's audio. Another audio, uh, audio trick in ScreenFlow is that you can right-click on a stereo audio track and separate the two channels. This could come in handy if I, say, talked over the phone and I wanted to mute her voice or mine. 
Now there's a new problem of how to sync up the audio-only recording from Audio Hijack with the video recording. And that's where the cruddy recording of my voice from the iPhone's internal mic comes into play. I was able to easily line up the recording from my big girl mic with the iPhone's recording and then delete the iPhone recording of my voice. Now I had two audio tracks, my good mic and the audio out of the iPhone and both are lined up with the video made in, with the screen recording on the iPhone. I felt like I had made fire. Now there was one more thing to fix before declaring victory. Have you ever noticed that in every presentation of iOS, it shows the time as 9.41 a.m.? Well, 9.41 a.m. happens to be the exact time that Steve Jobs started his introduction of the original iPhone. Making all iOS recordings show at 9.41 a.m. is a little software trick that Apple does under the hood. If you record your iPhone screen using QuickTime, though, uh, QuickTime your recordings will always show the recording as 9.41 a.m. But if you use the screen recording feature built into iOS, it does not change the time to 9.41 a.m. That seems like a complete oversight to me. I should write to them about that. Well, in any case, this one tip about allowing the iPhone to read the screen to you was going to be part of this whole series of other tips, and it would be the only tip that didn't take place at 9.41 a.m. We simply can't have that kind of discontinuity. I went to another tip where the top of the window was the same color. I took a screenshot of the 9.41 a.m. time in ScreenFlow, and then I added it as a video track above the rest of the video on this tip I just recorded. I resized it and blended it into this tip, and you would never know it was recorded using a completely different method. I did all of this work to record a three-minute video clip. Now do you see why it's so much work to make Screencast Online tutorials? I love every minute of it, and the discovery on this one made it ever so much more fun. One more thing, you really should sign up for the free trial of Screencast Online to see the 14 tips and iOS 14 tutorial, because it's really awesome. Well, with that, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can go to Patreon at podfeed.com slash Patreon or PayPal, podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join the community? Podfeed.com slash Facebook or podfeed.com slash Slack. We have both, so everybody's happy. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nusilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.